Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. I got so used to taking care of myself from an early age and kind of carving my own path. And then sure enough, once I became an entrepreneur, it was no different, right? My name is Esprit Devora, host of The Women in Tech Show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create The Women in Tech Show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. Hey, this is Adam Marks. I'm a tech founder, writer, and consultant, and I've been listening to The Women in Tech podcast for about three and a half years now. Esprit does a phenomenal job spotlighting female entrepreneurs from all over the world And one thing I love about the show is listening to their stories and how they've built their companies and organizations. We should always be pushing for representation and equality every time we go into the boardroom, every time we look for co-founders, every time we look to hire employees for our companies. So support representation and equality, support the Women in Tech podcast, follow me at AdamMarks13 on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And remember to always look for the orange sunglasses. To connect and collaborate with extraordinary women in tech around the world, remember to go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. The best business resource I have is my mentor's private Facebook group. I've never found a community that cares more about one another's success. It inspired me to create the same thing for podcasters. If you're a tech company or startup looking to grow your podcast audience, I created GetPodcastListeners.com, a private group specifically to discover how other podcasters have grown their audiences so we could do the same. Check out GetPodcastListeners.com. That's getpodcastlisteners.com. So by the time you are listening to this, we are in February. What? Yup, we are in February. New month, new year, new choices, new life. I know it feels just insanity. There's just like so much stuff going on around us that feels out of our control. And I know we're all processing this in different ways. Some people are having a really great year and other people are having a devastating year and a devastating time. And I think what's important to remember, what is that? Like, let go of the things we cannot control and just do with the things that we can, like our state of mind, our actions. And I know I've been meditating a lot more, really relying on headspace. I've been prioritizing my health in the mornings. I stopped taking morning meetings as much as possible and making sure it's a time to be grounded. I've also been honoring myself to think like around 6 p.m. to kind of start my self-care routine to make sure that I'm being mindful of my body and allowing my brain to have calm. I take time away from social media. There's moments where I don't feel addicted to it at all because I become so aware that I don't want to make the choice to be on a social network. I want to make the choice to be by myself or to read or to be quiet or just to kind of zone out. And so I think architecting the environment around us 
as much as possible to make sure it's the kind of environment we want to be in, like putting lights up that match. I know having red lights is really calming. I sometimes have these like twilight lights up that, and I, I have these candles that my friend gifted me that I light or lighting an incense. Can we architect our reality around us, our space around us, even if it's a small space, maybe it's a dorm room, maybe it's just like a really small apartment, maybe, you know, same as our parents' house and we want to just break out of our bedroom, but we can't. But what can we do within whatever space that we have to make it feel more calming, like a more loving environment to thrive in? So no matter what's going on in the world and what challenges arise, we at least are existing in a setting that feels very soothing and calming. I know that was such a, like a hippie LA Pisces little personal spot, but I think you get what I mean. Enjoy the next episode. Women in Tech podcast celebrating women in tech around the world. So excited for our next guest. She is a champion in the community to empower women around the world. Can't wait for you to hear her story. She is coming at us from Ontario, Canada. Hello. Hello, Miss Marie. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you here. So to kick things off, go ahead and tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I am the uh, founder of Tease Tea, and Tease Tea is basically a women's wellness-centric tea company. We believe in this whole idea of investing in yourself and your well-being while investing in women around the world. And how we do that is through a portion of proceeds. We invest in programs dedicated to elevating the lives and businesses of women, uh, most specifically and recently through our Founders Fund program, uh, which I also founded in 2020. And the Founders Fund to date has helped support over 500 women around the world gain access to mentorship and resources for their business. We've also had the pleasure of distributing over $100,000 in non-repayable grant funding across, I believe, 13 companies now, which has uh, been pretty exciting. So that's just a little bit about me. So you shared this story because I'm part of Founders Fund and you shared this story about some of the challenges that you've overcome with TC and like the challenges and risks that you've taken in your company are enough stress for a whole city. (laughs) (laughs) That's an understatement. That's for sure. Can you share a little bit about your experience being a founder and the kind of risks you've taken and what you've overcome? You're absolutely all dropping inspiring. Thank you. That means a lot. Um, Yes. Yeah, so first of all, for context, when I, when I started as an entrepreneur, like this was, you know, probably in the era when entrepreneurship was starting to become super glamorized, you know, kind of and into what it is seen today. But at that time I was working in hospitality. I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. I wasn't getting involved because I thought it was a sexy thing or an, you know, a glamorous thing to do. I just genuinely loved tea. And that came out of my uh, passion from developing tea programs in the places that I worked at in restaurants and hotels. And fun fact, I'm a certified tea sommelier. So that's kind of where a little bit of that passion comes from. And so, you know, naturally I thought, okay, I want to start a tea business, but I didn't even know a thing about business. I didn't even know what a co-working space was. I didn't know what, you know, VC funding meant, you know, angel investors. Like honestly, I barely even had anything to my name at that time. I was just living in my condo in downtown Toronto. I started um, my business with $500 and a Shopify store. And so, some of the challenges that I, I experienced, certainly, you know, from 
even being taken seriously to getting the capital I needed for my business. And I think specifically that was the hardest thing because I, I think I was constantly seen as this cute you know, hobby tea company and not much more than that. And despite having a profitable business year after year after year and, you know, having exponential growth in a short period of time, I would take this paperwork to my banks and I would say like, Hey, you know, I need some help funding purchase orders. Like I'm struggling. I have guaranteed revenue opportunities from people who want to purchase my products, like big partners and organizations. And I kept getting met with, no, like we can't help you. And I think also at that time, like, you know, e-commerce was really just because TST is almost eight years old now for context. I think, you know, in the e-commerce space, we still weren't taken as seriously as businesses to Mm -hmm. a lot of banks. So I think like that was a barrier. They couldn't understand, well, where's your physical office? And it's like, well, it's it's still in my home. Like I'm just starting out, but I, you know, I use a commercial kitchen and co-packers for the tea blending. And they're like, but you don't have your own physical space. And like, I don't need one. Like I, I, I thought I was being a smart entrepreneur by saving money and making sure that, you know, I wasn't over-investing in, in things that I didn't need early on, but then that turned out like banks just, you know, on the surface didn't take me that seriously. So some of the risks that I took, oh my gosh. So I basically drained the down payment on for a mortgage, not once, but twice to fund to purchase orders myself. And I'm talking like tens of thousands of dollars. So I think to date, I've probably put in over a hundred thousand dollars of my own hard earned money into my business. And, you know, uh, obviously I have paid myself back since I've had to put uh, at this point now, like I have a three-year-old, but I've had to put her RESP on the line. Like I've had to do in an RESP for those who don't know, it's a registered educational savings plan. So it's basically a, a fund that you set up for your, your child to go to school one day when they're 18. So I had to drain that, which, you know, I think a lot of people listening to this might right now might be like, you're crazy. Why would you do that? That's, you know, some might think that's a bit shameful to do that, but you do what it takes when you, you know, believe in, in your business and, and obviously taking calculated risks at the same time, going into labor while a huge order was crossing the border into Los Angeles. Wow. Actually, I went into labor and there's a $50,000 order going to my client crossing the border. This is like the most ridiculous thing that ever happened, but it got stuck at custom. So here I am in labor and I am in the middle of like contractions and everything. And I'm fighting with customs and I'm arguing with them. What? You know, my, yeah, I'm arguing with them. I'm pleading with my client in Los Angeles to still take, you know, the shipment of tea, but they had the right to send it back to us because it was a strict deadline. And I, I couldn't sit on $50,000 of a custom order, you know, that was made for yeah. them essentially. And so here I was the day, you know, the, the very important day where I should just simply be welcoming a new life into this world and taking on that, you know, joy, but trauma at the same time, call it what it is. I was dealing with business, the chaos. And fortunately I was able to negotiate, you know, uh, my clients keeping the product, which is great. And I was able to get customs to eventually clear it. And so that was, yeah, that was one of the many, one of the many interesting experiences so far. And you had your baby. And I had my baby. Yeah. yeah no big deal. Same day. Yeah. That's amazing. That's insane. It's insane. And there are so many paths that we could go down, but to give everybody context, you also devote so much of your time empowering women. So can mm-hmm. you give us context on Founders Fund? Yeah. So when I started TST seven years ago, I didn't even know what a social enterprise was. Like, again, like I was very ignorant about like 
what it meant to be an entrepreneur and, and like all these different terms that exist in the entrepreneurial space and the type of businesses that you could have. But I did know that due to my own like challenging upbringing, it was important for me to combine my passion with purpose when it came to entrepreneurship, which obviously is the whole point of a social enterprise. I just didn't know that that's what that meant. And so for me, like what that looked like, you know, growing up, I endearingly call myself white trash, just so we're on this, <laughs> we're clear. Um, I say that endearingly. I'm the first person in my family to graduate high school, let alone go to college. I did grade nine math three times before I even went to college. Came from an uneducated family. I was terrible in school. My parents had me at a very young age. My mom had me at 17. I kind of look at that experience as you know, we were both growing up together at the same time in a lot of ways. Like I was growing up as a child while she was growing up through adulthood. You know, she chose to have me instead of finish high school. Right. And so that led to its own complicated challenges. And, and, at, you know, I genuinely believe that my mom did the best she could with the experience and knowledge and what resources she had. But at the end of the day, you know, there, there were many moments where, I didn't necessarily feel like I had the best support system and my parents had split up before I was even a year old. And so I got so used to taking care of myself from an early age and kind of carving my own path. And then sure enough, once I became an entrepreneur, it was no different, right? I didn't have a support system then either. I wasn't involved in any communities of entrepreneurs. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know where to go find one at that time. Like I was in my little hospitality bubble for so long, right? Which is a, a different world, different industry. So I just kind of figured out everything on my own through trial and error and it sucked. And when I did figure things out little by little, you know, it just became so important to me. And I actually believe that inherently we have this in our DNA as uh, entrepreneurs to want to pay our success forward. Mm -hmm. I really do believe most of us carry that together. And so when other people specifically, you know, women identifying entrepreneurs, they would have questions challenges or anything like that, I would just be like, I want to help you. I want to support you. If I can help save you an expensive mistake, or if I can help introduce you to someone connection that might help, you know, support your business in any way, like I want to be that doc connector. And, And that just became something I was very passionate about early on, you know, when I was navigating my own challenges through my business. And so that's where TC had this element of giving back from day one. And so at first it was, I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but I had this like romantic idea of every month supporting a different women-led organization dedicated to supporting women, obviously. The challenge was with that is that, you know, every month I was trying to form a new relationship with someone. Right. And how do you make that meaningful and impactful when every month it's another organization? And then further to that, it's one thing to donate your time or your money to an organization. But then if you don't know what the impact is, like, where does it go? It starts to, and who is it helping? It it started to feel really transactional. So probably about four or five years in, and don't get me wrong, there are a lot of amazing organizations that they're doing incredible things. But in my experience, you know, being the donor, whether it was time, money, or, or product or a combination of all three, it just felt transactional. It didn't, it didn't have a lot of meaning because I didn't understand where it was going. And at the end of the day, our customers are the ones at TST. They deserve the story. They deserve to know is their money, right? At the end of the day, it's like not money from my personal pocket. It's money from right. the business, from my customers. And I wanted to be able to better explain to them like how we're creating an impact. And so, you know, being naturally ambitious, I guess I got a little bit over my head and I was like, I'll just create my own organization. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, we brought some really incredible human beings together to make that happen. 
a lot of ambitious, successful entrepreneurs that were just as committed to paying their success forward, either through time uh, to mentor women or through funding and to help contribute to our non-repayable funding program that we offer exclusively to members. And yeah, that was, that was like a, a really big deal. And it kind of blew up bigger than anything I could have ever imagined. And by year two of Founders Fund, we were like, okay, we've got something special here. What if we made investing in women even more accessible, meaning we don't just rely on super successful entrepreneurs who have extra money to like contribute to a funding pool, but the everyday entrepreneur, the one that's just starting out can invest in women as well. And so that's where we came up with the model of investing in yourself while investing in other women. And as you know, with every membership that you invest in, half of it goes directly to the funding pool. And, you know, it's only 450 a year. That's our, our current membership price. And so the fact that half of that goes right into investing in other women, like any business at any stage can say, okay, I can make an impact too in a very right. meaningful, accessible way. And so, yeah. I mean, you just do so much. A couple of things that you brought up that are interesting is that you take really high risk, but you also talked about that they're calculated risk. How can you share with us what does a calculated risk look like? Like, how do we know when we've gone too far? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a it's a very difficult combination of being informed by data, but not acting alone on data. And that's tricky, right? So at the end of the day, it's a combination of like, okay, looking at the numbers, looking at the stats, looking at all the facts, and then, you know, letting that influence what next steps might look like. And then it's also a combination for me anyway, trusting my gut. My gut makes me like risk adverse. I'm crazy. Mm -hmm. Like I will just jump into anything without thinking twice about it, which is not good. And I've learned the craft over the years of making sure that I also back it up with being informed by data. So it's a really tricky balance because in the past, I've definitely just have dived, you know, right off the cliff. And then, you know, I'm just like, wait, where's the parachute? Oh no, I forgot to build it. So, you know, I've had those moments, but, you know, I think a recent example of a huge risk I took on, we had a partnership, ironically, with another company in LA. They gave us our biggest purchase order to date. And it was 125,000 units of one product that I carried. So right. it was a really big order. And in order to make that happen, I needed money, obviously, to front the manufacturing costs of manufacturing this product. Right. And so it was half a million dollars I needed to find. Yeah. Let's just go find half a mil. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. It was in, and also in, let's go find half a million in the middle of a pandemic. (gasps) Good luck. This was in April. And I, and I had our, our, um, I was, you know, talking to my bank and I was like, you need to help me. Like, this is again, like by this point I had a really good relationship with my bank and it took years to get there, but come on, half a million dollars is a lot of money, especially in the pandemic. I knew I was going to have my work cut out for me. And the thing about purchase orders for anyone who's not familiar with what that process looks like, if somebody buys something from you and commits to a large order, you have to say yes to the purchase order first And then go to the bank and say, I have a guaranteed revenue purchase order. So it's kind of like a chicken and egg situation. I can't just go to the bank and say, hey, I want to pitch this product, but can you back me for 500 grand? They're going to be like, "Um, no, go get the purchase order first. But then if I say yes to the purchase order and the bank says, oh, okay, but we still can't do it, then I have to let down the client and lose the sale, right? It's a tricky thing. So 
I was pleading with my bank. I was like, look, you have to help me, help me figure this out. And I was organizing all the paperwork and everything, credit checks, all that stuff. And they were just like, look, we're so focused on helping businesses that are drowning in the pandemic right now. Like you're not our priority. Like we're really sorry. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, if you don't help me, like I'm going to become one of those businesses that are drowning, you know, in the middle right. of this pandemic. And so I, you know, I became super relentless and I worked with my amazing account manager and I worked with other banks. So this is, you know, I worked with three different banks to make this happen together. Um, and I had to put everything on the line. I had to, they were only able to help with, you know, like 75% of the money I needed. And I had to put up the other 25%. And I went everywhere from personal savings, every stock that I own. And I don't own that many stocks, but like it was everything I had. My daughter's RESP again, all my savings. Like I had to put up my home as collateral if I were to default on it. I had to like do everything to make this happen. But I knew again, like calculated risk, my gut told me it was right. My gut told me like, this is amazing values aligned company that is an honor to be featured in basically. And it'll open up more opportunities. That's what my gut was telling me, but that's not a guarantee. But the data told me like 125,000 products going out means 125,000 new people viewing your product, which is a big deal. And you want to boost your exposure in the U S because we're a Canadian company. This will help do that because it's an American company. And if you do this strategically, you can create incentives so that their customers come back to your website. Like they fall in love with your brand and then they come back to you and make it like an amazing experience. And so even though the margins were not super strong on that order, because again, yeah. of the size and everything, yeah. exchange rate, middle of the pandemic, all that stuff, I was like, this is also a marketing opportunity. Yeah. So I looked at the data, I trusted my gut, I did what it took, and I knew it was guaranteed revenue. At the end of the day, I will get paid, but it's a long time to get paid, and I had to sit on a ton of interest. My interest was $4,000 a month on that loan. <laughs> Just on the interest. Yeah. And so, you know, I had to do a huge cost analysis. Is it worth it? I need this loan for six months, four, you know, 4,000 months times six months. Does that, does that make sense? Right. So you look at all the data, it still made sense, fortunately. So that's probably, yeah, that's probably a good example of a more recent risk that I took that was a calculated risk. And it all worked out great. So at the end of the story is that it all worked out great. We got tons of new customers to the website. We got tons of new opportunities. This was actually a subscription box company that, um, you know, they only feature social enterprises, right? So it was like a huge honor to be featured with them. I mean, so many questions, like how did you manage the stress? Because you can't know, you're not psychic. I mean, this is a personal question, so feel free to say pass, but how do you have such a strong family dynamic to support you in such high-risk decisions? That's a really good question. So first of all, yeah, it was very stressful because it was in the middle of a pandemic when there's so many unknowns for so many businesses. And this was like that shiny dangling carrot. It was like, go after it because there could be so many opportunities on the other side. And the other thing too, I forgot to mention this product that I had to manufacture, it wasn't tea specifically, it was a tea accessory. And my regular supplier, when I went to them and I said, I need 125,000 units by this date, they laughed at me. They're like, 
no, we can't. Like we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. There, you know, we couldn't even ship you that many if we tried. Yeah. We're under capacity. I had to find a new supplier, which was wild, and a new supplier that I never worked with before and trust that they could make 125,000 units. I'm making, you know, huge wire transfers to them, 50,000 at a time, 100,000 at a time. Like just while I'm, you know, getting that half a million up from the manufacturing costs, right? And I'm wiring it to them and just hoping for the best. I've never worked with before. And then the other thing that I had a nightmare one night thinking, what if the boat sinks on the way to LA? There's so many units. I was like, it can't even ship in an airplane. It has to be, I'm talking huge sea shipping containers. Like it took six of them, right? And I never had an order that big of that magnitude that required sea shipping containers. And of course a boat doesn't sink, but like, well, you hope not, but I was so stressed and spiraling out of control. I was like, I just put everything on the line. And like, what if my product just like disappears? Or what if my manufacturer was a scam artist? What if I got conned, right? Yeah. So, and then to answer the second part of your question, so to- But none of that yeah. happened. No, none of that happened. I got so lucky, Esprit. Cause like, but I, you know what? I, I want to say lucky, but at the same time, I don't hear many stories about people being burned with suppliers as long as, you know, they're doing the best due diligence that they can. And I've also been very lucky and blessed. And like, I've had great relationships with most of my suppliers. And even though I'd never worked with this one before, yeah, I, I think I've asked the right questions and did the right due diligence on my end to make sure that everything would be as kosher as possible. Yeah, in terms of my family supporting that, well, first of all, I think if I had any other husband than my own, I wouldn't be supported <laughs> because, yeah, like if that is a crazy thing to allow your partner to do, right? Like to put so much on the line like that. But my husband's also an entrepreneur, so he gets it. My husband mm-hmm. owns a civil engineering company and he started it from the ground up with his business partner. They work on geotechnical foundational type of work. Yeah. He's had to put in a lot of, you know, upfront costs and take big risks himself. And you only get further in this world as an entrepreneur by taking those big risks. You don't get anywhere by playing it safe. You won't. You're destined to fail in my opinion, in my experience with, you know, other things that I've seen unfold with other businesses. And so that is the only reason why I am convinced that he supported it because he is an entrepreneur as well. And he, he understood it. It's so key to be surrounded by people that like get our lifestyle. I'll share a two second story. I built the first action sports social network and I was deep in debt. Like I leveraged every single credit card I had and I was offered a job as a personal assistant. And I remember it was like 70,000 a year and I was like drowning in debt. And so at that time I was like, oh my God, this job would like really help me a lot. And there was also at the same time, this conference happening in New York and I lived in LA and I turned down the job, used my credit card to get a flight to New York because of this conference that I really believed in. And I ended up on that trip meeting my future investor. Wow. So it was like, like the choices we make as founders, like People go ask me all the time stuff like, is XYZ worth it? Is it is this networking event worth it? Is that worth it? Where should I spend my time? Da, da, da. But the serendipity that you can't plan for in being an entrepreneur related, like that has a relationship, like as a cousin of all the risks you take and all the times you step outside of your comfort zone, you can't plan for those things. But 
the one thing that I am extremely confident in is being an entrepreneur is not what it is on the HBO shows or whatever. It's not this like glamorized like thing that it's become. Like it's a very, very challenging life. And a lot of people ask me, you know, when did I know I was an entrepreneur? And like my answer is like, I just feel like I was born this way. What is your answer? When did you know you were a founder and entrepreneur? I like that. I was born this way. <sighs> when did I know? Cause I feel like I never really knew I wasn't one of those. I feel like there's a lot of founder stories out there about like, Oh, I was selling things when I was a kid and that wasn't my story. So I honestly think my ability to just take risks, honestly. And I think that that comes from my childhood. I think that comes from my childhood upbringing because again, like I knew from an early age, I was going to have to take care of myself and roll up my sleeves and work hard and take care of myself. And I think I never really knew I was going to be an entrepreneur, but I knew when I was an entrepreneur, I was going to be really good at it because I have figured out fucking everything under the sun and then some. Like I am exceptionally resourceful and exceptionally relentless. And those are like the two key traits that have followed me throughout childhood into adulthood, into my career that have just served me so well. And, and I think that's those two things, like relentlessly resourceful, like that makes like for key ingredients to be a successful entrepreneur. I, I fundamentally believe that. And so, yeah, I guess answer your question, I, I never really knew until I started dabbling in it, you know, with early on with TC. But once I got in, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to be really good at this. I mean, I admire and love the confidence. Do you think people could learn how to be relentlessly resourceful or do you think they should find what their own superpowers are and just like really build those up? What do you think is possible and what do you think is more important? I think it all comes down to resources because I didn't have any when I started my business, right? I only had me and $500 and again, an online store. Like I didn't have anything else, right? And so that relentlessly resourceful, like those were my strengths. Like that was it. Like my hospitality experience, what did that give me to help, to help being an entrepreneur? Honestly, the only thing it really gave was like exceptional work ethic. Cause you have to have great work ethic when you work in hotels and restaurants and the long hours that, that exist there. And, you know, pleasing strangers with a smile, even the ones that, you know, <laughs> if you don't always deserve your smile. Right. And so I think that that's an exceptional skill to have as an entrepreneur as well. But, uh, to answer your question, like should some people lead into their strengths and everything again, depending on resources, like if you are killer in like you know, um, sales, for example, or whatever your background might be. And you happen to have a co-founder who excels in something completely different, like operations, or you have an investor who wants to get involved with the business and help support some of your weaknesses so that you can double down on your strengths. Like, I think it's all about what your circumstances are and what your resources are, and then lean into those. Once you have a good idea for me, I didn't have a choice. I really had to figure it out all by myself, but that's not everyone's story. And if I had a do over, I wish that wasn't my story. I wish I had more resources and support. And I probably would have like actively tried to find a co-founder to, to help the journey. That's for sure. Where can women find the Founders Fund? How can they be a part of it if they too feel like, I wish I had resources in a network so I don't have to go at this alone? Yeah, thanks for asking. So foundersfund.ca, very important to note, not foundersfund.com mm -hmm. because actually you are in the LA area. And so I don't know if you're aware, but Founders Fund is a huge Silicon Valley 
like, I think it's a, it's a tech hedge fund basically. And it's, it's, it's run by Peter Thiel. So what's funny about that is I, I get asked that sometimes, like how, like, how do you have the audacity to call yourself founders fund? Like there already is a founders fund in the States. And, but when we started founders fund three years ago, uh, it wasn't it, like, we knew that founders fund existed, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a big thing yet. Like it wasn't the big firm that it is today. And all that to say, I just tell people, I'm like, I don't think Peter Thiel wants to kill the spirit of women entrepreneurs. And we're just doing something totally different here, minding our own business, doing <laughs> exceptional things. So all that to say, you can visit us at foundersfund.ca. That's where we are, but we serve women obviously uh, globally, mostly throughout the U S and Canada. And uh, you can can learn more about us there. Amazing. And the last question I like to ask, it's a selfish question. I am obsessed with tools. And obviously one tool you've used in your growth is Shopify. How did you make that decision to use Shopify to launch your store? And has that been pivotal in how your company operates? And kind of like a part B is what's your favorite tool outside of Shopify? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Shopify has been huge for, for my business because they've really democratized entrepreneurship. They've really made it accessible for anyone to have an online business and, and sell their products. What I really love about it is that you can you can get your Shopify store at any stage and it'll grow with you. So whether you are starting out selling your baked goods on the weekend because that brings you joy or whether you're Kylie Jenner and you, your cosmetics company, Shopify is here to serve everyone and, and, you know, from all spectrums. And that's what I love about it. And it's really the platform to grow with you in every sense of the word. And it has so many incredible like apps that you can plug into your store. So it's not a one size fits all thing. If you need something specific to your site to customize it, just like the app store on your phone, chances are Shopify has an app for that as well. And so it's really been paramount and it's supported not only my online business, but when we do trade shows, I've had pop-ups in New York in the past, no matter what we do, Shopify seems to have some sort of software hardware solution to run with it. So yeah. And then on the other side, what is my favorite tool? This sounds so basic, but like, I really do live by Google calendar. It's not fancy, but like Google calendar keeps me in check. Like oh. with every, yeah. Like honestly, let's not I take Google you. calendar for granted, right? <laughs> like Google oh my calendar gosh. might run my life, but my life is only organized because of Google calendar. And so yes. Between having, you know, all your meetings and like, you know, you know exactly where you need to be and when I use it for time blocking. I use it for reminders. I have it like synced up in my car. Like I have it everywhere and it's just super helpful. Yeah. I know that's not the sexiest tool. To no, say, I, love it. I, I love it. And honestly, I would love for you to share and kind of leave everyone with, well, one, how to connect with you. And then like, let's wrap it up by talking about time blocking. Time blocking is something that I've done too for weekly time blocks. And it's a game changer to be able mm -hmm. to be more productive. But first, how can people connect with you? Yeah. So you can connect with me directly on Instagram because I do a lot of AMAs on there. So you can ask me anything on there. I'll do them in stories or you can just slide into my DMs. Like I, I just really love to connect with people there. So it's Sheena Brady with two Y's. Can you spell it? And yeah, absolutely. So it's Sheena, S-H-E-E-N-A, Brady, B-R-A-D-Y. Why? I have two whys. And uh, oh my gosh, what was your other question? Okay, so time blocking. I just think uh, that that would be blocking. really helpful for everybody. Tell me about time blocking. Um, yeah. How do you do it? I practice like a very popular theory called deep work. 
and you could probably find a quick YouTube video on what that means. But in short, I basically, I block something on my calendar. Let's say it's an hour and I'm working on an internal project, but deep work for me means finding my chamber. Like that's the whole philosophy of deep work. It's like, find your chamber, lock yourself in it and don't get out of it until time is up. And that means phone in the other room. That means no distractions, door closed, nobody come in. And then even on my Mac, like I have that setting um, on the right side of everyone's Mac. There's like, you can turn off your notifications. Mm. So all notifications- The do not disturb, off. you mean, Yes, right? that's yeah, what yeah, it is, yeah. sorry. Turn off all, yeah, exactly, the do not disturb. And so that time blocking is critical. So no distractions, no nothing. And it's not really much more fancy than that. I know there's Pomodoro techniques where some people work in 45 minute sprints. But no, for me, I just do a combination of Google time blocking and then removing all distractions and getting into my chamber, just getting it done. It makes such a huge difference. And for those of you looking for resources for just focused work, I'm a writer, as some of you may know. And so I'm part of Writer's Hour, which is free and in multiple time zones at 8 a.m. And it's amazing. And it's a 50-minute writing block that I do actually three times a day because I do it in multiple time zones. (laughs) And then um, there's also gogodone.com. So writershour.com, gogodone.com. Both of these are actually female-founded. Writer's Hour is co-founded by a woman and then Gogo Dunn is founded by a woman. Amazing. And these are same thing, either an hour, hour and a half like work sessions, because sometimes we just need the accountability in order to get ourselves in the zone. But I yeah. Love that. I'll just yeah. That Thank you so much for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast. Anything else you wanted to share before we go? No, the pleasure is all mine. I love the work that you do is free and I'm just super honored to be a part of uh, your show today. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. If you want to connect and collaborate with more extraordinary women in tech around the world, remember, go to the Women in Tech Facebook group, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you can find us at Women in Tech Show. Say hello and connect by going to womenintechvip.com, womenintechvip.com. Takes you straight to the Facebook group for the podcast. And I will see you guys talk to you guys, hear you guys in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Sheena Brady, and I'm the founder of TST and Founders Fund. We believe in investing in yourself and your well-being while investing in women around the world. And I'm based in Ottawa, Ontario, and you're listening to Women in Tech. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.